Piers Cunningham talking with Dr. Ian Storey, lecturer in information systems at RMIT. Welcome back to the program, Ian. Thank you, Piers. Always good to speak with you. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting subject and it follows on from something that we've talked about recently, which was a, a kind of potted history of mathematics, a big subject to try to compress down into an hour or less, which is what we did. And that podcast is already posted to our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. But uh, drilling down a little bit into that subject and uh, some of the luminaries that come up in the history and development and evolution of mathematics over the centuries... Uh, are a couple of figures. Uh, One, Isaac Newton, who we did touch on previously, but also the Scottish physicist James Clerk Maxwell, who was alive between 1831 and 1879. And he did some really amazing things, Ian, which you're going to talk about. And I know you want to talk a little bit about Newton as well. But just as as a little bit of an introduction, in my reading of Maxwell, one of the things that, that stood out to me is that Maxwell actually he was very practical and he was a, he was you know the description of him as a child is he was very very curious and always wanting to explain how things worked and so a couple of amazing contributions that he's made to the world he he actually took the world's first rather imperfect color photograph which we'll we'll talk about a bit later and also there was a prize the uh, Cambridge University Adams prize in 1856 which was to to answer the question of, of what comprised the rings of Saturn, which had been observed, oh. b- observed by, that, by that stage for centuries, Maxwell won that prize. So I'll throw it over to Ian to talk about his side of this. When we come to an opportune moment, I'll uh, drill down into those things, which I, I thought were really amazing achievements for, for quite a young person to have come up with explanations which, which hold true till today. And in fact, one of the, uh, the gaps in the Saturnian rings is named after Maxwell. I didn't know that about the rings. I, um, I knew he made some advances in colour theory. Mm but not that he'd taken the first colour photograph. That is amazing. Mm. What impressed me, and, and I think you're going to be coming into this with what you're talking about, is just the practical. You know, this is not just sort of numbers and solving equations on on chalkboards or paper, uh, or even modern times on a computer. This is a, These are very, very practical, you know, mathematical breakthroughs that had very practical solutions and, and practical results in the real world. Yes, but he is mostly remembered, at least by physics students, university students, undergrads, for his theoretical achievement. Indeed. Well, look, why don't we go to your, your notes, Ian, which you kindly sent okay, through, well, and I'll let you, let you get stuck into it. We had originally been talking about how mathematics applies to the real world. Yep. And you said, could we do a program on how, how it applies? Because we talked about how it developed but how it applies now. Yep, yep. And that led me to think about Newton, because we talked a bit about calculus and Newton. And Newton's theories were both theoretical and heavily practical. So he, he developed calculus. There were others who developed calculus at the same time. One of the elements of his theories is that force is the second derivative of motion. Right. So um, when you apply a force, it doesn't just immediately start, you know, the car going. 
it accelerates the car. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It's, it's, not, so it's not immediate. You, it's not immediate. So it builds up according to the, to the second order derivative. Um, Bishop Berkeley thought this was nonsense. He didn't believe in derivatives. He thought they were theoretical nonsense. But it allows us to build airplanes. It about allows us to build cars to work out how much energy we need to fly a plane, to, f to drive a car precisely, to fly things to Mars, you know, to fly objects outside of the solar system. So, so to, to, na to navigate, to, to work out where things will be in space and over time. In space and time, mm. how the planets move. You know, you know, I'd have to, I'd have um, to interject, and I know this relates a little bit to another conversation we're going to have. But um, I saw a video recently. A friend sent me of the latest Tesla ro uh, Roadster, and you were talking about how force takes time to result in acceleration. You know, it's a gradual process. <laughs> but, but this thing, because it's got a rocket motor on the back of it, um, it, it, uh, it literally goes from naught to one hundred in about one second, which is just unbelievable. For a car, the, <laughs> really unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. The the electric motor has um, a big advantage over the uh, the petrol motor in that it um, its maximum torque is at stall. Yes. Yeah. So there are videos online of a Tesla overtaking, well, um, a drag, you know, at a light set of lights or yeah. whatever, um, between a Tesla, a huge car, and a, I think it was a four hundred cc motorbike. Now, the motorbike should win hands down. Mm. It lost. Yeah. <laughs> so the the amount of torque that they can get out of these electrical engines, of course, they heat up enormously. It's very dangerous to do it. But um, yeah, they can get enormous acceleration. That's right. So it's because they have a maximum torque. At yeah. So instead of a torque band for a you know for for a, a petrol car or even a turbo petrol, which might be you know if in a in a sort of fairly modern engine, it might be fifteen hundred. Uh, RPM through to 4,000 might be the torque band. You've still got to get the engine from from zero to, to 1,500 to get to that peak torque. Whereas with an electric engine like in a Tesla, uh, the torque band is immediate from zero. And also they can engineer them so that the torque band is quite wide. So they don't need, in a, in a petrol engine, you have an enormous amount of metal devoted to changing the gears. Yeah. But if you could just run the petrol engine in its torque band, you wouldn't need all of that. Yep. You could cut it right back. Yep. And I like the idea of a car that has a, an electric engine where it can also, if it needs to be, it could also be um, charged up by a petrol engine for backup. Yeah, well, that's, that's um, the... And there are that's some... A, that's a Prius. That's a Toyota Prius. No, no, no. Um, a, a, a Prius uh, has... It has a number of planetary gears, and and they mix the electric engine with the with the petrol engine. Mm -hmm. But there are cars where they they just run the electric engine, and they charge it up if need be, and you can charge up the mostly they charge up the electric engine. So, I think a BMW i3 uh -huh. okay. is like okay. that. The Bolt, the Chevy Bolt, is like right. that. Right. Yep. And that. You know, that's what I reckon would be great here in Australia if if they were affordable for people like us. But yeah, well, we're we're crossing um, over, aren't we? Because we were gonna we were try we talked about batteries, and I know that's a separate discussion. But it kind of, in a way, it 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 does blend into this conversation of sort of the practical 
benefits of maths. But I'll let you go back to your original discussion. Newton's theories used real numbers. And like I said last time, they involved limits. And we don't even know if limits apply to reality at all. Right. They also proposed a flat space, which we definitely know does not exist. A flat space in terms of measurements of lengths along triangles don't actually work the way they should. Pythagoras's rule is not actually correct. Yep. It is correct in Euclidean space, and Euclidean space is used for mathematics all over. Yep. And it's used for the mathematics of physics, and it's used in developing airplanes and cars and things like we said before. Yep. And it's accurate enough that you can do you know, you can do predictions of how cars will operate. You don't need relativity in order to 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 design a car. One point I would like to make about Newton and mathematics and reality and, and all of that is that Newton in in 1722 owned uh, nearly $22,000 of South Sea I stock. love this story. <laughs> and it's written up in a book that you referred me to, which is, which is a big, the mentor of Warren Buffett, you know, one of the richest men in the world and one of the most, oh, one yeah, of the yeah. most successful investors in the world. His mentor, yep. the guy who wrote, who, who, who actually published this story, which you're now about to avail us with. So, so continue. The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. He was a great influence over Warren Buffett. Anyway, I'll let you go. Yeah, he wrote that in 1949. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, so he had 22,000 huge amount in that uh, in that 1722 we're talking yeah, about yeah <laughs> and apparently uh it's there are some people who try to defend the great master and say that the the, the data isn't quite correct mm. but i think it probably mm. is the south sea stock was a bubble and newton invested a little bit earlier on uh 1720 and then he exited and he told all his friends that you're stupid for staying in it. It's going to burst. It's a bubble. Because there'd been a huge number of bubbles, you know. Yeah. Um, most famous one way before the South Sea bubble was the uh, tulip bubble. Right. Yep. Uh, and um, so he invested $22,000 worth of stock. He saw his friends getting rich. And so he re-entered. And that's when he started amassing a huge amount of stock. And he he re-entered just before it burst. <laughs> <laughs> so he entered at the wrong time and left at the wrong time. <laughs> and um, he he said, I can calculate the motion of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people. <laughs> I know. And, and, <laughs> so and then no one was ever allowed to mention the, uh, the South Sea <laughs> stock. No one could ever say that word again in his life. Or they'd be, Absolutely, or they'd be literally, yeah. can you imagine? They'd be fired or something because it was just too much for him to bear. So, so that is very. Con that's that's almost Trumpian. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you know, right. don't talk. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. It. Well, it's 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 just. <laughs> oh, fi you're fired. Yeah, you know? it, it was just. Well, it was, and it was actually it, it lends some. If it really was too much for him to talk about, then that would suggest that the true the story has some truth, and that he actually did he exactly. did lose a lot of money on that. And it goes yeah. to show, doesn't yeah. it, that there is a clear separation. It's EQ versus IQ in a way. You can be a very, very smart person, as Newton no doubt was, 
But I think as we touched on the last time we spoke, Newton was was known to be quite a willful person, quite into self-publicity and self-promotion. Pretty big ego there. And so, you know, you can be smart on paper, but it doesn't mean you can't lose a lot of money on the stock market. It's really quite funny that he forbade anyone to talk about (laughs) it. But it's, it's true, too, that, you know, you can you can accurately predict the motion of the entire planet mm-hmm. but you can't predict the motion of any one human being on the planet yep. so without getting too technical about about maxwell mm. there are a number of things that newton's physics didn't quite cover mm-hmm. it's easy to explain friction even airflow and water pressure but uh, things like heat engines thermodynamics needed there were other people who put in theories that also helped right. but they were completely consistent with Newtonian physics right. other elements were really weird they're not weird to us because we have these things in our homes everywhere and those are magnets electromagnets electricity electromagnetism was really confounding because you have these forces that operate at 90 degrees to the cause of the force. Right. They go together. So electricity and magnetism go together. And it really, it all seemed entirely mystifying. And there were a a number of different ways of looking at it. So I think Faraday was one of the first. And Faraday's law you have an electric field around a loop of wire. So you, you have a loop of wire. Everybody has seen how you, you wrap a, a wire around a, a nail. You, you put an electric field across it and the nail becomes magnetic. And that's used in inductors all the time. Inductors are really hard things to get your head around, even for electronics engineers. Uh, because when, when you turn them off, they release their energy in really strange ways. If you turn a capacitor off, it can keep its energy almost indefinitely. But if you turn off a inductor the wrong way, you get a back EMF that can destroy a lot of things in the park. So there's energy stored up in this magnetic field. Right, and that's why and that's now, why a, a magnet can hold its hold its magnetic field. The energy is built up and stays there. You don't have to keep putting energy yeah, in. Yeah, right. So, so with 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 um, the so screw which you've wrapped up in wire, to, and then you've put a field through it, that creates a magnet. So then, if you take if you take yeah. away the, the 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 source of electricity that you've put into it, the nail re- remains magnetic. Yes and no. There's a lot of resistance in an, in any wire. Yes. So it it's like you have a water wheel, mm. and you. And the water flowing underneath gets the wheel going. Yep. But then if you drop if you drop the water, the wheel will keep going. Okay. Now the the trouble with any wire though is that it's it's got resistance. Right. Now if you had a superconductive wire, the magnetic field would stay there and the electricity would keep running forever. Yep. And that's something and that's, well, and that's yeah. so this is a problem you have with uh, high voltage uh, power lines. If you're trying to get power from Loyang in Victoria to Melbourne, 
um, you've got those giant overhead wire cables. That they are actually electrical resistance means that you lose electricity in the in the transfer in the in the yeah yeah yep. yeah. And the the um, amount you lose is proportional to the current. Right. That's why they bump up the voltage so that the total energy can be the same but with a low current. Uh -huh. These laws about electricity and magnetism, they work together in such a way that he worked out that, that they can sort of resonate together. Right. And, so um, are they the can, same thing, can, Ian? Are they the same thing? You know, they talk about Maxwell being a person who he was able to converge or bring together a whole lot of different theories and unify theories. And and this is yeah he brought together his famous four yeah laws. and and but uh, Gauss's law yep. Faraday's law Ampere's law and Gauss's law for magnetism. So does that mean that so, that magnetism is the same as electricity? Well, this is the interesting point. For him, they were different things. Right. Every other Newtonian law, you could have a um, a frame of reference that was a constant velocity and the laws would stay the same. Okay. However, with Maxwell's law, there was one speed that, that turned out to be needed in order to propagate an electromagnetic wave. So you, you remember I was saying that they work together. One creates the other. So an electric field creates a magnetic field and they swap right. over. Well, he worked out that for that to propagate, it would need to travel at the speed of light. Okay. So a lot of people were worried about this fact that in Newtonian physics, you could have a relativistic framework at a constant velocity, but not in, in Maxwell's theory. And it was Einstein, of course, who joined the two together. And he made Maxwell's theory work within any relativistic framework. Right. The way that I, I kind of like to explain mm. it is most of you will know that if, if you're moving towards something, things start to bunch up. And if you're moving away from them, they they move further apart, according to relativity. So the Lorentz uh, transformation of distance. And this was needed in order to explain how electromagnetism worked. So if you imagine electrons going around a coil yep. and you're moving towards that coil, then some of the electrons are moving towards you and some are moving away, yep, yep. right? And the, the, the fact that your speed is changing their distances, their, their movements relative to each other, means that you're more repelled, any electrons that you have are more repelled from the electrons in the, in the direction coming towards you than they are from the electrons going away from you. So you feel a sideways force. Right. Now, any listener could be excused for not quite understanding my explanation there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but basically, be, with the electrons moving around in, let's say, a circle, and you moving towards mm. them, the difference in the distances for the electrons means that you feel a force to one side and away from the other side. Okay, how does that manifest in the real world? Like, what would you, how, how would you, well, how would you experience that? that? That's magnetism. You experience that as a magnetic force. Ah. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity.
Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. So it's it's all entirely electrostatics. Yeah. So this is this is how they combine the two. There is no magnetism. There's relativity. Thinking of electricity that way, you can explain both electricity and magnetism. Okay. I never do. <laughs> if I if I do electronics and I do equations in electronics about capacitors or inductors. I think in terms of you know classical physics, and everybody else does. Mm. So the point I was making about mathematics and Newton is that we could even explain electricity and magnetism in that way. So everything in a car, heat engines, burning of the gas, the inductors that you use or coils that you use in early engines, the electricity that was used to, to create the spark all of those things could be could be explained by real numbers flat space newton and maxwell's laws yep so when you do first year physics you spend all your time learning all these laws i remember i had one subject when i did my undergrad physics in first year one subject was relativity and quantum mechanics together. <laughs> yeah. Um, the rest was all classical physics. Mm. And, it, and it just works for so much that it's amazing. Mm. Think of all the, all the yep. things that were able to be achieved just using cl- the Euclidean geometry and the classical physics. You can build pyramids. You can build bridges. You can do a lot of things uh, without the need for Einstein's work and that, and that quantum side, which which they didn't get. All of that technology takes us up to, I don't know, um, the 50s pretty much, you know, radio, television, Mm. but not semiconductors, so not transistors. Mm. So your phone, your laptop, your TV, you know, even, even lights, LED lights, none of those can be explained by that physics. Yep. Transistors can be, you can sort of cobble together an understanding in terms of where energy levels for for electrons in metals start to be drained by fields. Uh, The field effect transistor is actually relatively easy to explain, but it requires quantum mechanics to understand how it works. Yep, yep. The original hint that something was wrong with classical mechanics was um, what they call the ultraviolet catastrophe. Yes. And this was to do with black body radiation. Yeah. So I don't want to get too deeply into it, but um, black body radiation was uh, first discovered because they found that the the uh, <coughs> the spectrum of a hot body should get higher and higher and higher with lower and lower frequencies. Mm. But what they found was that there was a peak frequency and that matched the temperature of the body. So every everybody for a certain temperature will have that peak frequency and will, and will look and will radiate that colour. Mm. 
The interesting thing about that though, I find, is that <coughs> when they discovered the cosmic uh, microwave background radiation, yep. I think they even have the picture in in the start of the TV show, The Big yeah. Bang. So that picture represents small variations in frequency in, in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right. But the actual frequency profile matches exactly black body radiation. And the only way that that could happen is if the, the Big Bang had occurred and it had been slowly cooling slowly cooling after a point where light was able to escape. It came, became non-luminescent. The universe has a black body radiation profile, the entire universe. Yes. And about half the physicists before that discovery, the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation, did not believe in the Big Bang. It was just too incredible. How could everything fit into, a, you know, into the space of an electron? Yeah, yeah. But, but the proof is that that profile of black body radiation. Yeah, it's the it's the remnant heat generated by the original explosion. By the original explosion. Yeah, and, and yeah. So it's and and one thing that's interesting. Yeah. Well, on the on the subject of the the spectrum that you're talking about, and and you know, so you can see if you look at it, if you heat up a piece of if you heat up a poker in a fire, and the end of it starts glowing red. If you, if you put that in a dark room, you're seeing infrared light being released because the actual colour hasn't changed. So that the, the colour of the poker is still the colour of metal or black or close to black, kind of silvery black. But, but because it's been heated up, you're seeing infrared light. You're seeing a mix. Yeah, right, right. So the sun has infrared light. Yes. And it has ultraviolet yes. light. But it, but it peaks at the light that we see. Yes, and that's because we've that, ev we have evolved to see that because the sun is our source and because of light. That's the, you know, as we were because evolving. that's the most common light that there is. The majority of light that we see in the spectrum is visible light. Yes, yeah, and we're one of the few animals that can carry around our own light sources. Yes. Uh, so our our eyes evolved um, under the sun. Yes. Yep. Um, so, so we we like to heat things up to where they they produce you know for the purposes of creating light we heat things up to a temperature where they produce something approaching white light. yes yeah but as they get as they get colder yeah they will go into into infrared yep yep um, you can actually see infrared if you take a photo with your um, phone mm -hmm. your um, the phone sensors are more in more sensitive to infrared than our mm -hmm. eyes so you can actually see infrared if you take a photo with your phone you can see infrared some of those phones that use infrared to unlock with your face ah uh, yes yeah if, if you use another phone you can see the dots that are produced ah okay yeah you can take a photo which shows the beam Yes, it's it's yeah. I actually haven't done. I, I, you, know, you know what? Um, I should I should do it to, just to confirm. Yeah, you, you know yeah. I have done it. Where I've, what I've done is I've actually pointed a remote control from say a TV. If you point if you point yeah. that at a video camera, 
you can you can yep. see flashes of the infrared infrared uh, signal. So you're right. So yes. the, the charge yep. coupled device in your phone or in a camera, digital camera, can pick up that that signal. And and so something that you can't see with your eyes can be seen by that charge coupled device. And that just brings me briefly to to something that Maxwell did fairly early on in his life, which I thought was extraordinary. And again, it was just a great, beautiful example of a mathematician, a theoretician working out something very practical. And he, he started playing around with light and combining light. So he projected red, green, and blue onto a, onto a white background. And he realized that when you combine three projected light sources in red green and blue you actually get white and so they cancel themselves out and he using fairly rudimentary photographic paper was able to photograph i think it was a piece of tartan because he was scott it was scottish so made sense he'd photographed so i, I did he, not he, know. He, i'm going to google he, that as soon he, as he, I, he photographed it soon it's I not finish. a great photo but yep. it, it is supposedly yep. the first so he, he combined those filters and he and then used an emulsifying paper light sensitive paper to record the image and it was the first color image so he actually did invent color photography it's not something that many people give him credit for, but he did take the first. It's wow. it's it's wow. not a it's not a great image. It's a rudimentary image, and apparently he was held back because the the emulsifying the emulsifier he used in his light sensitive paper to develop the image had a bias to the ultraviolet, so it meant that one of his filters wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah. But yeah. but uh, but nevertheless, he did do that, and I mean, what an imagine amazing thing to see. He could do it at home. I think he did do it at home. But to, to, com- to combine three colours and realise that when you combine the three, you, you actually get white. I mean, th- that the, itself um, would be an amazing in- thing to have seen and, and observed. The interesting thing is that this is not a property of light, but a property of our eyes. So we have three receptors for colour in our eyes. Right. Those receptors, you know, any colour that, that is between the, the main colours for those receptors will mix the receptors in. Right. Your eyes do that. And um, it's not because of the color, the properties of the color hitting your eyes, but the property of your eyes. There's three receptors. Now, most mammals have less than that. I think birds have three. Mm. The theory is that when our monkey ancestors lived in the trees, mm. one of the alleles for one of the receptors doubled itself up so there was a mutation and this happens you know this doubling up can happen quite often right relative to evolutionary time geological time Mm. and so we had three receptors two of which were the same and two of them slowly spread out and it it meant that we could see ripe fruit yeah right so we could we could pick red Uh and i think it's a reason why red is still very hard for some people to see so, ah, that's why um, you get color blindness. It's because of those recept- receptors yeah. being too similar. Yeah, so it, it still, you know, hasn't worked its way through. Isn't that everybody. amazing? Isn't it amazing? And so, so yeah. the answer then to say that um, color itself and some animals, some animals won't see our televisions the way we no, see. No, them, no, know, absolutely. Like, and and then think of the way think yeah, of the way yeah. an insect sees. You know, through a multifaceted, um, you know, they might be only seeing an infrared or ultraviolet. Um, or, or I mean, I think yeah. cats and dogs maybe see in black and white. So, so you're right. There's the yeah, and and bees bees can see. Um, I think it's ultraviolet. Mm. 
and and there are colours that plant that are, that flowers are producing that we will never see mm. that are meant to attract bees. So the answer then is we perceive colour according to the way that our eyes have evolved, but the the reality is that. The colours emitted from an object, if you hold up, I've got a, one of those fluorescent markers in my, my hand right now, and in bright sunshine, it looks sort of a, you know, that fluorescent yellow kind of colour. But but yeah. the truth is that that's emitting light throughout the spectrum. I'm only seeing it in a narrow band of the visible light spectrum. But in fact, in yeah, fact, it's got, it's got, a, it's the full spectrum that is what it's emitting. It, it, it'll emit various... Um, colors well actually it'll reflect yes. so it's the it's absorbing the opposite colors of what you're seeing um, so a white ob a white object will reflect almost everything that comes that comes onto its surface in the visible spectrum mm -hmm. you'll have all of those colors hitting your eye but exciting only the three receptors mm -hmm. and then your brain mixes the three receptors and calls it white Right. Yep. Um, so, so a television screen doesn't actually have the same colours. If you if you see a photo of a of a white page, it's only got those three colours in. It. it doesn't have the other frequencies. Yes. Yep. I've really got to look up that that. Yeah. Photo. Well, so that was one thing he did, and just briefly uh, uh, before I let you get back to your notes, the other thing he did, which was really cool, was in 1856, Cambridge had the Adams Prize, which was a scientific competition to explain the rings of Saturn because they'd been observed since Galileo's time so they'd been observed for centuries by the time of Maxwell and uh, in 1856 that Cambridge University had its Adams Prize and it was the motion of the rings of Saturn and uh, different hypotheses were given regarding the rings namely that the rings were one rigid two fluid or partly gaseous or three composed of isolated masses. Maxwell and other candidates were asked which of these hypotheses would be mechanically stable. This was such a brilliant breakthrough and such a great example because it was, it was, it was maths and applied to an object that was miles and miles away and the best view of they, had, they had of it was fairly grainy through a fairly basic telescope. And yet the answer he came up with is correct because he developed equations to model Saturn and its rings. He showed that on hypothesis one, a uniform or non-uniform solid ring could not be stable, except for a bizarre case where a uniform solid ring had a large point mass attached to it. So like a, a huge sort of lump, wow. like almost like a moon. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, yeah, a, like a, a, yeah. a large moon and then these rings linking yeah, yeah. it. That was impossible. Yeah. That wasn't going to hold together. It, it, if, you know, with rotation, that would break down. He examined the single ring composed of unconnected satellites. So it's like a, a hula hoop going around Saturn. He showed that a fluid ring, which was the second hypothesis, could not be stable and would break up into small portions. And then he examined the single ring composed of unconnected satellites and the propagation of waves around this ring. He extended this analysis to satellites of unequal mass, multiple rings of satellites and other issues. And wow. he, con he concluded... Wow the rings were made of unconnected particles, which is the case. And when the first space probes went past there and took images, they basically showed that, that Saturn's rings are made up of chunks of ice and rock, mainly ice, that range in size from the size of a house down to the size of a grain of sand. 
uh, and they all orbit at different speeds depending on their distance from Saturn. Also, quite interestingly, they're believed to be quite young, so they might be less than 100 million years old, and in, in 20 or 30 million years from now, we, we, they may not even be there because they are being lost. So they're, yeah, they're they get swept they're, out. By they're the they're that's right, but they're they're a temporary. They're they're probably a large collision. A body collided with Saturn a hundred million years ago, uh, and the debris through the forces of gravity and, and and orbital mechanics have been herded into the rings that we see now. But uh, they they will eventually not be there. So we're seeing a snapshot in time of this beautiful ring system, which was explained beautifully by Maxwell, and uh, he has uh, a gap in the ring named after him as a result of his efforts. Well, that brings brings us back to the theme that with the mathematics that was available, consistent with Newtonian mechanics, you could you could do so many wonderful things. There was so much technology available. Yep. But also, he was such a genius to see the to to be able to work that out and to see the the connection between the four laws of electromagnetism. Einstein recognised that he was close to understanding relativity. Yep. I think at one point I I tried to find the reference before the show, but I think at one point he said that if Maxwell had lived long enough, he would have discovered relativity. Yep. I do know that at one point he was asked if he stood on the shoulders of the greats like mm. Newton, and he replied, "No, on the shoulders of Maxwell." Yes, yes. <laughs> so he he understood the debt that he owed to Maxwell. Yes, and to me, that's the uh, the real genius is to be able to come up with a practical benefit from your your mathematics, from your deep theory, to apply that to a to a celestial body. Oh, so you know, many, absolutely. And people don't. I mean, I suppose people do get it, but that that the only way you can have a light bulb that turns on regularly or a cell phone that allows you to FaceTime with your friends on the other side of the world, those kind of things rely on this deep theoretical understanding. Before you can, before you can evolve to a product like that, you've got to have the deep theory. Like it's, it's fundamental. And, and that's what people like Maxwell and Newton and Einstein gave us. Yeah, the um, the theory of electromagnetism is still used in in electronic devices. Mm. Yes, there are quantum mechanical elements there, but um, they're used, you know, to supply power to homes. They're used with batteries. Oh, they they're just used everywhere. Yeah, so so mathematics really does work. Really is powerful, and even just the mathematics of Newtonian physics, mixed with Maxwell's four laws and a few other things like thermodynamics can cover just about everything you want to cover, except of course for transistors. Yep. But even there it's relatively easy to, to learn the the few, you know, mathematical rules that you need in order to understand how that, that how they work as well. Yep. It's a great conversation and I think it's it's a great inspiration to people who are considering what they're going to study at uni or considering mathematics at school or later on in school before they go to uni to me it it, it gives a lot of inspiration because otherwise it can seem like a very dry pursuit uh, deep equations and deep mathematics can seem very dry and and hard to to make it interesting in a way unless you can sort of tie it into to the real world or the real universe or the real solar system around us that's to me is where it becomes fascinating and brilliant because it's got that it's got that connection. It's 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 
deeply connected to reality. In fact, it's the way that you, you explain reality. It's not just theory for its own sake. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.